The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Well, welcome, folks. We're picking it up, our verse-by-verse journey through the Gospel of Mark, and we're at Mark chapter 7. In a moment, we're going to start at verse 1 of Mark chapter 7. Now, let's have a reminder here that with the Gospel of Mark, we're saying it's basically in three acts. Is how we're breaking it down. There's Act One, Act Two, and Act Three, and uh, we're in. We're nearing the end of Act One, and the theme of Act One in the Gospel of Mark is who is this man? Who is this? Um, that's sort of the theme. I mean, he's doing all these incredible things. Who is this? The theme of Act Two is because we're going to learn at the end of Act One. The answer is he's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Well, then the theme of Act 2 is, who is the Messiah? Because once they come to realize that he's the Messiah, then Jesus has to explain, but the Messiah isn't who you think he is. And then Act 3 is uh, the Messiah, uh, we'll just say, meets um, uh, the religious elite. It's the the passion of Christ, the, the, the suffering of Christ in the last week uh, in Jerusalem. So we're nearing, we're nearing the end of Act 1. And we've been witnessing for the last several weeks Jesus' displays of power in all these different ways. And the response each time is, who is this? How, how can he do these things? Last week we watched as Jesus displayed his authority in two ways. One, by showing himself to be the new Moses, or one who's greater than Moses, by miraculously feeding thousands of people in the wilderness. Moses gave manna. Jesus was giving like a new manna. Uh, he was the new Moses, greater than Moses. And then Jesus did what, only, what the book of Job says that only God can do. Jesus walked upon the water. And then Mark used that, the unusual phrase in Jesus walking upon the water. Remember it says that Jesus was about to pass by them. On, on the water, and um, a, f- a phrase that was used in the Old Testament uh, when God's glory was being revealed to the people. Um, God said to Moses in Exodus 33, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. My glory will pass by you. In 1 Kings 19, 18 or 19, 19, Elijah was told, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So it's a phrase used to talking about God revealing his, his glory and his authority. And again, Mark uses that. The Lord Jesus was about to pass by them. He was revealing his glory to them. Well, in today's passage, Jesus demonstrates his authority in another unique way. Jesus demonstrates his authority in how he interacts with Scripture. So in today's passage, Jesus Jesus does with Scripture what no mere mortal, no mere prophet, no even mere angel could do. So we pick up the story in Mark chapter 7. Now let me remind you that the gospel writers were essentially following the rules and writings of the classic uh, first century biography, meaning... um, Things didn't have to be in chronological order. Uh, a gospel writer, a biography writer in the first century had a theme of the person of whom they were writing, and then you could arrange that person's life however you wanted to to bring out the theme. 
So today's passage is not necessarily chronologically or even geographically tied to the incidents before it or after it. It's more likely a matter of Mark setting the table, pardon the pun, you'll see next week, um, for what's coming next when Jesus heads into the so-called unclean Gentile territory and interacts with the so-called unclean Gentile people. So this unclean theme is being set up today for next week. So we begin with what we're calling the controversy. Um, I'm going to read the whole, the first part of today's passage, verses 1 to 13. Uh, It's kind of a a unique passage that uh, you really have to have an insight into Jewish thinking and and Jewish tradition and so on to really understand what's going on. And we're going to do our best to to fill in the blanks today. It says, um, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Then in brackets, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it's written, quoting Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Let's pause there, and we're going to do our best to pull out of this the innuendo that's going on here. It's quite fascinating. So, there's, there's an escalation of the tension between Jesus and the religious and the political authorities. That's continuing here. Uh, verse 1, there it says, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come down from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. Um, now remember, we come down. Well, this is north of Jerusalem, so why does it say come down? Again, because they're not thinking map. They're thinking your actual journey. Jerusalem was a higher altitude than, than Galilee, so you would come down from Jerusalem. And uh, even though Jerusalem's south, you're going north, but you're coming down as you go north. Um, And as it says in your outline, Jerusalem is being established by Mark as the center of opposition to Jesus. Jerusalem is being established by Mark as the center of opposition to Jesus. Now, Mark chapter 2 is where the conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities began. But that was Jesus dealing with just local authorities. Mark 3 verse 6 is where things got turned up a notch when the local authorities huddled together along with some local members of Herod's fan club, the Herodians, and they began to plot ways to kill Jesus. And then in Mark 3.22 is where it went from local to national news. That's where the teams of Pharisees from Jerusalem began to be sent out to follow and harass Jesus. Now let's pick it up verse 2. And they saw some of the, the Pharisees 
saw some of uh, his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. As your outline says, it's important to understand that this has nothing to do with hygiene. Okay, let's get that. All you mothers out there thinking, well, this is good. You know, this has nothing to do with hygiene. Okay, we're not talking about washing off germs. That's not what this is all about. The whole germ understanding did not exist in the first century. Okay, this is all about ceremonial impurity. As your outline says, defiled literally means common but came to be used in Judaism of anything that was deemed unworthy of God's presence. So defiled came to mean anything that was deemed unworthy of God's presence. So it's not about hygiene. It's not about cleaning your hands and getting the dirt off of your hands. No, this is, this is a spiritual thinking here. Maybe a loose way of translating it into our culture might be to think in terms of appropriate dress in the presence of royalty. Okay, think in those terms. Um, To greet the queen wearing your pajamas and slippers without having brushed your hair or your teeth would be considered defiled or common or inappropriate in our culture, right? It would not be illegal, okay? There's no law that I'm aware of against wearing pajamas in the presence of the queen. It would simply be deemed unworthy of the queen's presence. It would be poor form. It would be bad protocol. In a similar way, that's what we're dealing with in today's passage. The scribes and the Pharisees took this ceremonial defilement very seriously. They saw the world around them as spiritually, not physically, spiritually defiling them, so they had to put up barriers against it. For example, many of them would completely immerse themselves in water after going to the marketplace. Why? Just in case some Gentile brushed up against them in the alleyway or in the street, which in their minds would ceremonially defile them. So they'd have to go home and completely bathe to to wash themselves ceremonially, not physically, ceremonially. Uh, Here's a, a writing from an ancient rabbi. He wrote this, whoever eats bread without previously washing his hands, is as though he had intercourse with a prostitute. That's how seriously they took this stuff. Now you say, where's all this written in the Bible? All of this washing and cleansing and ceremonial stuff. That's just it. It's not in the Bible. That's the point. In today's passage in Mark, Jesus is not dealing with an activity that's mentioned or even forbidden in the law. He's dealing with an activity that the religious authorities had deemed to be unworthy of God's presence. The Old Testament law did not require the washing of your hands prior to eating meals. Priests were required to wash their hands prior to offering sacrifices, but that's it. The scribes and the Pharisees decided on their own that this rule of washing should be applied to all of Israel at all mealtimes, not just to priests during offering time. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they saw themselves as the tradition police. So the tradition police were on patrol in Mark chapter 7. Now, why do I even have to explain this? Why do I have to explain this to you people? You know, why do we have to research this? I have to explain this because this was uniquely a Jewish thing. 
And we, for the most part, I think, are a Gentile, a non-Jewish audience. Now, if we were all Jews, I wouldn't have to pause and explain what ceremonially unclean means because we would all know what it means. With that in mind, keep reading verses 3 and 4. The Pharise- Mark writes, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Again, not for hygiene, but for ceremonial reasons. This one phrase, these two verses, are the, uh, some of the clues scholars used to deduce that Mark wrote his gospel for a non-Jewish audience. As your outline says, Mark's audience was primarily Gentile, as evidenced by his explanation of Jewish culture. So scholars read that and say, ah, Mark's explaining Jewish things, which means he wasn't writing to Jews primarily. He was writing to Gentiles thinking, I'm going to have to explain this because my audience won't know what this is all about. Let's keep reading, verse 5. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law, teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? See, they didn't ask why don't they live according to the law. Why don't they live according to the tradition of the elders, he says. Uh, Instead of eating their food with defiled hands. Again, not defiled with germs, spiritually, ceremonially defiled. As your outline says, tradition of the elders was, at that time, only in oral form. The tradition, traditional explanations of the Old Testament law. So the, traditional explana- the traditions of the elders was the traditional explanations of the Old Testament law. Okay? Now at that time, in the first century, it was not written down yet. This was just an oral tradition. They began around the year, they figure, scholars figure about 450 BC, around the time of Ezra, who kind of restored the, the Old Testament law. And around that time, what happened was, well, let me put it this way. What I have here is uh, what's called a commentary, okay? I pulled it out of the shelf of my library. So this is Exposition of Isaiah, meaning this is just one volume, so this is the, the gospel, the gospel, the prophetic book of Isaiah, verse by verse, explained from scholars. Okay, so that the the book of Isaiah, which is a sizable book, but not this big. I mean, this is hundreds of pages, say four, you know, almost four hundred pages, just explaining Isaiah. And uh, so what this is is scholars are saying, okay, here's verse, you know, Isaiah seven verse two. Here's what some think this means. Here's the, you know, the background of this, and, and going on verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you can study Isaiah by using a commentary. That's what the tradition tradition of the elders was. It was a commentary on the Old Testament, but it was all oral. It was all just like memorized and oral traditions. And then in the late 200s, so 200 years or so after Mark chapter 7, is when they actually finally wrote it down. And now it's called the Mishnah. Okay? Mishnah. And the Mishnah is the tradition of the elders written down. An explanation of what, a commentary on the, on the law. Okay? So... The thing is, the Pharisees and the scribes and so on, they saw their traditions as a fence around God's law to protect people from violating it, okay? So if the cliff is this front row, then 
this is a barrier. This is the Mishnah. This is the tradition of the elders. So by law, I can actually walk all the way up to here. This is permitted. This ground is permitted. Only past this row is it, does the law say don't go past here. But the Mishnah is, okay, let's set up a barrier several feet in front of there so people don't get anywhere near the edge. Okay, so yes, it's legal. It's not against the law to do this, but we're going to make it against the law as a way of making sure no one ever breaks the law. They think they're helping, but they're really hurting. So nowhere in the law does it say you have to wash your hands before you eat, but let's make that a law so nobody does anything that is unworthy of the presence of God. So here's where the scribes and Pharisees treated their traditions differently than we treat our commentaries. I can read a commentary and say, no, I don't think that's right. I disagree with that. Or no, that's that's not what the Bible says. That's what some guy from the 1800s said. But that's not necessarily what I think is true today. Not so with the tradition of the elders, okay? As your outline says... The 4a, the scribes and Pharisees assigned their explanations equal authority to the Old Testament law. The scribes and the Pharisees, they assigned their explanations as equal authority. So they're saying, okay, Darren, here's the book of Isaiah. Here's the Mishnah. They have equal authority. That's what they were doing. I uh, was watching a YouTube a while ago of uh, some guys who liked, this is particularly an American thing, they like to walk around as a free speech advocates, they walk around with their phones or the cameras, and they go into government offices, and they film everything. Because, you know, it's a way of free speech. We have a right to do this, it's the public access, we can do all this. And, uh, and the police come, the people in the government offices, invariably get angry, can't you, no, get out of here, you can't film in here, can't you see that sign, it's against our policy, you're not allowed to film in here. And they're saying, no, call the police, go ahead, I have a right as a citizen to film in here, you work for me, it's, it's fascinating, it's fun to watch these showdowns. Sometimes when I get bored at 3 a.m. if I wake up, I'm going to go watch some <laughs> videos of people fighting. And, uh, and what they... This one guy was quite genius. He said, no, you need to understand something. Policy is not the same thing as law. It might not be your policy in this building, but the law is that I can. And the law supersedes your policy. Your policy is not the law. This is the policy. This is the law, is what Jesus was saying. Now, this next point is crucial to understanding what's happening here. As your outline says, letter B, The scribes and Pharisees were not accusing Jesus' disciples of breaking Old Testament law. They were accusing them of failing to follow the additional rules that had been created. They were accused of breaking the additional rules that had been created. Let's keep reading verses 6 and 8, 6 to 8 of Mark 7. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it's written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to human traditions. See what's happening. Number five, instead of justifying the actions of his disciples, Jesus vilifies the actions of his opponents. Instead of justifying the action of his disciples, Jesus vilifies, or he critiques, he challenges, he demeans the actions of his opponents. 
Now, prophesied can mean foretelling or forthtelling. Prophesied doesn't always mean, you know, uh, foretelling. Foretelling means telling um, would be predicting. And forthtelling would be preaching. So there's a difference between uh, predicting and preaching. And both are forms of prophecy. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying that Isaiah predicted such activity so much as Jesus is saying that Isaiah preached against such activity. Uh, hypocrites was the word meaning a play actor or a pretender. A hypocrite is not someone necessarily who says one thing and does another. Otherwise, we're all hypocrites. All have shinned. Shin. <laughs> All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one's righteous, no, not one. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, John said. So we all have a level of not doing what we know to be right, but a hypocrite means more than that. It's a play actor. Someone's a pretender. Someone, it's literally the word for a mask. So you're wearing a mask. And internally, you are not at all what you um, show yourself to be externally. Matthew used the word hypocrite 13 times in his gospel. This is the only time Mark ever uses it. Now, the peoples are focusing upon the outward appearance, while God is focusing upon the inward reality, is what he's saying here. And uh, Jesus is saying, letter A in your outline, their devotion ends at their lips and it never reaches their heart. Their devotion ends at their lips and never reaches their heart. Jesus is saying that these people have clearly swapped their own words for God's commands. In fact, that's letter B on uh, your outline, 5B. They lift up their own commands and they bury God's commands. They lift up their own commands and they bury God's commands. So their devotion is on their lips and never reaches their hearts. They lift up their own commands and they bury God's commands. Why does Jesus even bother with this petty accusation? Why does he feel the need to address this so publicly? Because he goes very public with his response here. You need to understand first century culture, which had a high importance placed upon reputation. By challenging Jesus' disciples in public, these religious leaders were really challenging and seeking to shame Jesus in public. If they can shame his followers, they can shame Jesus. What kind of a leader produces such disrespectful followers? Is what they were saying. Jesus can't merely ignore the issue, but he needs to address it head on. And that's what he does here. And then he goes on to show how it's the religious leaders who are actually acting shamefully. Now, a moment ago, we said that these men lift up their own commands and they bury God's commands. In the next few verses, Jesus publicly gives an example of this lifting and burying. Let's read verses 9 to 13. He says, he gives an example. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Let, let me give some examples. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, again, another explanation for the Gentile audience, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your, own, by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. 
So let's take this portion bit, bite by bite here. Verse 9. He continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Again, this was sarcasm here. As your outline says, the scribes and Pharisees prided themselves in meticulously keeping the law. So Jesus uses ironic sarcasm by congratulating them for being experts on rejecting the law. So they pride themselves in keeping every T and dotting every I. And Jesus says, congratulations, you're really good at rejecting the law. What? The crowd would have said, did you hear what he just said? Wow. You know, that's like, uh, yeah, you can see what it's like saying. Now, what does this korban mean? He says, he said, you declare it korban. That means offering or vow. And it was often used of something dedicated to God and so unavailable for human use. So if you declared something korban, you're saying, I've made it, declared it korban. It's dedicated to God, so I can't use it for mere human purposes. Okay, that's what that word meant. Now, sounds great in principle, but as your outline says, apparently some were using this as a scheme of protecting their assets from being used to take care of their aged parents. So some use this as a scheme to protect their assets from being used to take care of their aging parents. How did this work? Well, it worked like this. In Scripture, God commands children to honor their parents. And in Jewish culture, that entailed more than just showing respect. It required providing for your parents' physical necessities as well, something that I'm praying and counting on my children doing. That's why we had four, to make sure one of them is going to hit a jackpot somewhere. So... Jesus exposes a scam that the Pharisees had cooked up as a way of ducking one's responsibility. In this scheme, you would inform your parents that all of your assets have been declared Corbin. They've all been declared dedicated to God, and therefore you can't use them to help your parents. Sorry, mom and dad, I'd love to help you, but all of my resources are Corbin. Sorry, folks, I wish I could help you, but all my money has been set apart for God. How can you complain about that? You should be proud of me. Now, strictly speaking, though, Corban was a declaration of your intention to give property. It was not the actual transfer of property. Ah. So you, what you were saying was it sounded more than it was. It was your intention. It wasn't an actual transfer. It's not as though... In our culture, Corban means all of my assets have been signed over to Broadway Church. Care of Darren Latham. <laughs> That's not what it was. You're saying, I've written down that I intend someday to give my assets to Broadway Church. In the meantime, it's all in my bank account under my direction. So, so if you can think of it, this was a first century version of hiding your money in a Swiss bank account or somewhere in the Cayman Islands. Only it had the appearance of great spirituality and dedication to God. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. So let's pull back and get the big picture here. The Pharisees are upset with Jesus' disciples. Not because his disciples have broken any Old Testament laws. Not because the disciples have broken God's laws. But because his disciples aren't following one of the Pharisees' policies. And Jesus says, you guys are pathetic. You get all worked up about your commands and you ignore God's commands. In fact, you've replaced God's commands with your commands. And you do all of this in the name of God. You're such hypocrites. You scheme to avoid taking care of your parents 
as a classic example of this. So with all that in mind, let's reread verses 1 to 13, and we, now hopefully it's going to make much more sense. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of the disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as washing cups, pitchers, kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, hypocrites, as it's written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. You have a fine way of setting, for example, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Moses said, for example, honor your father and mother. Anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And you do many other things like that. Suddenly, we oh, I see what's happening here. So that's the controversy. Now we move on to the teaching, verses 14 to 23. Jesus goes a bit deeper in his unpacking of what's going on. Let's read verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him, and he said, Listen to me, people, everyone, and understand this. As your outline says, Since the scribes and Pharisees sought to publicly shame Jesus, he first addresses the crowd. So since the Pharisees sought to publicly shame Jesus, Jesus has to address the crowd. Uh, as your outline says, number two, in verses six to 13, Jesus attacked their source of authority. He now attacks their understanding of the source of impurity. So in the first portion, verses 16 to 13, Jesus attacked their source of authority. He's now gonna attack their understanding of the source of impurity. Remember, he's speaking to people who believe that you need to bathe if a Gentile brushes against you. He's speaking to people who believe that not washing your hands is equal to visiting a prostitute. Read verse 15. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. Okay? Now, verse 16, you notice, I don't know what version you have. Uh, modern translations don't have verse 16. Notice in your version, probably a lot of them go from verse 15 to 17. Maybe you didn't even notice that. Um, verse 16 says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Um, that's absent from most reliable manuscripts. And as a result, it's only included as a footnote in many versions, modern versions now. Remember when we studied the uh, doctrine of Revelation, not the book of Revelation, the doctrine of Revelation, how we got our Bible and so on. And we learned all about manuscripts and translations. So what the, the truth is that the earliest and best manuscripts don't have that phrase in there. Um, so the argument is made, so by not having it, are we taking away from the word of God? Or did the manuscripts that were written add to the word of God? <laughs> you choose. Um, 
but uh, that's why many versions just go from verse 15 to 17. And again, it does not take away from any content of Scripture here. It's just a phrase that some manuscripts added. Well, then number uh, four in your outline, Jesus moves from a public declaration to a private explanation. Jesus now moves from a public declaration to a private explanation. Let's read verse 17. After he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. They're saying, what did you mean by that? It's nothing that you know, goes into a person, what comes out of them. What does that even mean? Verse 18, the beginning of verse 18. Are you so dull, he asked. <laughs> uh, Jesus could be direct at times, apparently. Um, and what happens now in verse 18, he goes on to explain the first line from verse 15. So verse 15, the first line is, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. He's now in verse 18 explaining what that means. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So as your outline says, letter A, 6A, Food can't defile us since it never comes in contact with our heart. So Jesus is saying, food can't defile you because it doesn't touch your heart. Now, he doesn't mean the physical organ. He means the center of your being, your soul, the core of you that makes your decisions, that holds your values and so on. Now, the box on your outline, two big questions here. Isn't Jesus doing what he accused his opponents of doing? Isn't he placing himself above the law of God? He's just now just declaring all foods clean. What, what gives him the authority to do that? Who is this guy? That's the point. So the answer is yes. The difference is he has the authority to do it. Isn't Jesus doing what he accused the, the, his opponents of doing? Isn't he placing himself above the law? Yep, he is. Deal with it. Uh, the difference is he has the authority to do it. That's all part of his revelation of himself. That's why he says in Gospels, you have heard that it was said long ago, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. He's raising the bar of Scripture. And he's, he's, uh, he's kind of doing what the Mishnah did. He's saying, but I say to you, and my word is true. I, I'm, I'm changing this. It's again... Um, they're asking, who is this man? It's a claim of divinity that Jesus is expressing here. Uh, remember Mark 2, 28. There's another hint of this when it came to the Sabbath. Uh, starting at Mark 2, 27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man, talking of himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. He says, I, I rule the Sabbath. Okay. Second question in that box isn't Jesus contradicting the Old Testament dietary laws here? Um, you know, by changing the dietary laws? As your outline says, he's not contradicting them, he's overruling them. He's not contradicting them per se, he's overruling them. He's bringing in a new kingdom with new laws. Jesus is bringing in a new kingdom with new laws. That's why we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have the Old Covenant with the old rules and the New Covenant with the new rules. 
And that's why Paul says, I've given you some examples there, I believe, in your outline that you can look up. Um, a new covenant I'm giving you, it says in the Old Testament. And then Mark talks about this. And then Paul in Romans talks about, you know, some people have some days above other days and Sabbaths and so on, but we don't judge people by that anymore. We're living under a new covenant, a new era that Jesus has brought in with his death and resurrection. That's what the, the original uh, Last Supper was all about. A new covenant I'm making with you in my blood. Then Jesus explains the second part of verse 15. He says, uh, and, uh, verse, starting at verse 20 to 23, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, like sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil come from inside and defile a person. So as your outline says, Jesus is saying true defilement comes from within the human heart, not outside the body. True defilement comes from within the heart. Now, sometimes we have desires that come from within that cause us to act that then defile our bodies. But the source of that is not the outside. The source is the inside. That's why Jesus was saying, you've heard that it was said, you know, to, 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 uh, to uh, commit adultery, you know, to, to have sex with someone is to, is to commit adultery. But I tell you, even to lust is to commit adultery in your heart. He's saying, no, you need to understand the source of sin is not the actual deed itself. The source of sin is the desire within. It starts inside. So because you've never actually physically committed adultery doesn't mean you're sinless. Now, Jesus wasn't equating the th lust with adultery, meaning it's not the same thing. It's not, the, the, the damage is different, clearly, okay? The damage is different. But, for example, you, in the Old Testament, you could be stoned for committing adultery, but you wouldn't be stoned for thinking about it. And Jesus equated, you know, being angry with someone with murder. He's not saying, if you're angry with someone, then you should be put in prison. No, he's, that's not what he's saying. He's simply saying, but don't think because you've never murdered someone, but you walk around hating the world, don't think you can hate the world and be sinless because you've never actually murdered someone. He's saying, no, sin begins in the heart. You're not sinless if you've never murdered someone. But I'm not equating the two, but, uh, but both are sin is what he's saying. So, having made clear that defilement isn't about the physical realm, but about the heart realm, Mark sets us up for another trip into the Galilee Gentile territory where we're going to witness an incredibly unusual interaction. John brought it up last week with an incredibly wise, faith-filled, insightful Gentile woman who appears on the surface to get the better of Jesus in a debate. The only person in Scripture who seems to outwit Jesus in a debate and it's fascinating interaction that we're going to look at next week. Even though John wanted us to look at it last week. Any questions about uh, what we've interacted with today? Yes, Bob. Are we guilty of doing the same thing today with our religious traditions? I think you are personally, Bob. Um, <laughs> but I don't know about us. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think you're absolutely right, Bob. Um, we can be guilty of this very same thing. We can, the phrase I like to use is, and I'm, I can be guilty of this as well, we tend to spiritualize our preferences. 
And uh, we tend to think that if I like something, that means God likes it. I mean, we could talk about also, we could talk about things like music, um, appearance, you know. I remember having somebody say to me years ago, um, Pastor Darren, you know, why don't you wear a suit and tie when you preach, when you're in church? And they said to me, you know, if you were visiting the king, wouldn't you wear a suit and tie? And I said, not if he was my dad. And that's sometimes where we... No, I'm not saying then I step on the platform in my pajamas and cutoffs and so on. So, but that's more ruled societally and culturally because I have preached in pajamas and cutoffs at a youth retreat once in a context that I won't explain at this point. But it, it fit into the context. So again, uh, it, it's tied to culture, but you're absolutely right. We can have our own traditions that we then codify codify and say, this is God's preference. And it's not actually in scripture. It's good insight. I'm glad you said it and I didn't. Yes. 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 That is a great question. The question is, in verse 19, now keep in mind, Mark's source is Peter. Remember, we learned that at the beginning. Mark translated for Peter, and so Peter is the apostolic source of Mark's gospel. And, uh, and so the question being asked in verse 19, it says, um, 7, 19, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And the question is, is that Mark's commentary or is that Peter's commentary? Because it was Peter who had been given the vision in Joppa uh, of, the, of the tarp with the animals and take, eat, and no, I can't. And, and God reveals to him three times, no, I, I'm declaring this clean. So I would dare say that this, because scholars have discussed this and debate this, and this is quite probably, that's a great insight, this is quite probably Mark quoting Peter, and Peter years later realizing that's what Jesus was saying there. And Jesus was reaffirming, the Spirit of God was reaffirming it to me later on that, you know, was it Simon the Tanner's house, I think? And on that rooftop, that's, I'm Peter connecting the dots. That this was, Jesus was foreshadowing this then. He was saying it, and we just didn't hear it then. But that's where it was real. That's the seed of this. That's the root where Jesus was declaring then things were, all foods are clean. And then it was reaffirmed to me by the Spirit later. So I, that's a great insight. Yes, John. Says that now he 
I don't see where you see the contradiction or the conflict. Right. So the question is, you know, Isaiah, Isaiah's commission, I think Isaiah 6 is probably what you're thinking about. Um, and uh, when he, uh, the, the angel comes and places the coal on him and, so, and, and declares his, his mouth clean after Isaiah had declared his unworthiness, I, I think you might be trying to be a little too wooden there, John, or too literal perhaps. Yeah, it's fair enough. So what I'm saying is I think sometimes we can be too wooden or literal when we're interpreting things. And so that's all a very clearly symbolic thing. First of all, let's remember that didn't happen in the physical realm. It happened in, in a vision. And uh, so a coal came and there's nothing magical about a coal other than burning your lips. So it, it's symbolic of the purity, the fire of God's presence, the holiness of God. And so Isaiah says, I, I am unworthy in myself. And the angel th symbolically says, no, I'm taking power from the presence of God and I have the authority to declare you clean and I am changing your life. I'm giving you ability and power. I'm giving you authority. Um, I'm putting words in your mouth. That's like Jer God said to Jeremiah. You know, I appoint you today. I'm putting my words in your mouth. And so that was like a classic, symbolic, prophetic call in the Old Testament. He, God was was symbolically communicating, the mouth you brought into this room is not the mouth you're going to leave with. It's, it's, it's like when, let's stick with the queen analogy today, when the queen has that, the scepter placed upon her, and okay, there you go, now you're now the queen, you came in here princess, now you walk out a queen. It's not that that scepter had anything magical, it's just that it was something very symbolic was going on, and that's what was happening with the coals. Good question. Yes, sir. Sure, fair enough. So the, the, the observation was that a lot of the uh, instructions in, the, in Leviticus were, were you, as you said, because they're in the desert and they didn't have refrigeration and so on. Um, now, that's something we have imposed upon that. The Bible doesn't say that. Because of your health purposes, you know, we have surmised that, okay? And we've surmised the same thing with lobster and all that. You know, all their bottom feeders and so on and so forth. Well, we eat them. We pay extra for bottom feeders, truth be told. Um, so some of that is attempts by us to kind of justify some of these laws when in, in some ways it's simply, otherwise what's God saying? Ah, go ahead, eat the bottom feeders now. You know, it's okay. They didn't have refrigeration in the first century. And uh, so why is it okay to eat pork now, but it wasn't, you know, and it's okay to eat pork in AD 34, but not AD 33. What's up with that? Um, was Mr. Westinghouse born <laughs> between there? No. So I guess we're trying to maybe impose something there more than that's there. It is true that that probably did help them, but uh, that wasn't the reason for it. The reason was more as a way of, again, God choosing a way to communicate separateness. Our problem was we were sinful. 
and God had to symbolically somehow visually communicate you are separate. And there are things that are holy and things that are unholy, things that are set apart that you need to avoid. And he's doing all that as a way of teaching us so that when the Messiah comes, it'll all make sense. The symbolism will all make sense to us. And that's what the sacrifices were about. There's nothing magical about an animal dying, but it was, ah, oh, because I've sinned, the wages that sin pays is death. Something has to die. The animal dies in my place. It's the blood shed that does it. Why? Because life is in the blood. Oh, then the Messiah comes. The Messiah dies. Oh, so he has died in my place. His shed blood. Oh, because his life is being shed. Oh, okay, I connect the dots. And so the symbolism is communicating a deeper reality. All right, folks, God bless you. Next week, we continue with what I think is one of the coolest interactions where a woman outwits Jesus. We'll look at that next week. God bless you. Thanks for being here.